0: Welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 31, October 18th through October 24th, 1861. Last week, we talked about the naval action at the Head of Passes near New Orleans. Thomas Jackson was promoted to Major General, and also... We had a little snapshot of what is going on around the world. This week we have three engagements one in Virginia, the other in Kentucky, and a third in Missouri. So we have a pretty full schedule for today. Let's head first to Virginia and continue the misfortune of Union field armies. When last we left off in Northern Virginia, George B. McClellan was still organizing his Army of the Potomac. If you are thinking, man, it's taking a while to get going here, then you would be right. You would not be the only folks thinking that way, though. In 1861, the public and Congress were both ready to try to turn the tide. Up to this point, we had Big Bethel, First Manassas, and Wilson's Creek, all of which were chalked up in the loss Column, the Federals. Sitting and staring across their lines in Northern Virginia was not going to change this record. So McClellan, called the Reluctant Warrior, was going to have to do something. That something would come in the form of a reconnaissance action near Leesburg, Virginia. Charles P. Stone would send some of his forces across the Potomac. McClellan was concerned about the security of his line that stretched out along the Potomac. Charles Stone commanded a brigade under Patterson in the Shenandoah Valley, if you recall the failure of Patterson to trap Joseph Johnston and keep him from joining forces with Beauregard prior to the Battle of First Manassas. Charles Pomeroy Stone had served in the Mexican-American War, before being stationed at various places, including Fort Monroe in Virginia. Stone would command a division in October of 1861. He was not liked by some of his troops, including the 20th Massachusetts, which would fight at Balls Bluff. This regiment was made up of abolitionists from the state, and was very much against the practice of returning escaped slaves to their owners a practice that was usual for the entire Union army, but specifically, they would hate General Stone for its enforcement. I will cover the aftermath of Ball's Bluff in detail, so I am jumping forward quite a bit in the life of Charles Stone, but he does go on to serve in the Egyptian army for a time post-bellum. He would also return to New York and become an engineer working on the Statue of Liberty. So in 1861, George McClellan would construct a plan to hopefully secure his right. It should be noted that Little Mac was constantly fearful that he was outnumbered, so he was never comfortable committing troops. Stone's men would perform a slight demonstration where they were at a place called Harrison's Island, which sat in the middle of the Potomac River. This is where the verbiage of orders becomes an issue. McClellan's divisional commander interpreted them differently. After the fact, McClellan would assert he had not intended for any crossing of the river into Virginia at all. Stone also had under his command a brigade that he would send across the river at a place called Edwards Ferry, but they would play a very little part in diverting attention away from Harrison's Island and a place called Ball's Bluff. A nighttime excursion led the Union troops to believe that there was a large camp of Confederates right across the Potomac. The only problem is, when the action that starts Ball's Bluff begins, they were not there. In fact, they had never existed. In the darkness, trees had been mistaken for rebel tents. A more in-depth look into the area would be necessary, so Stone selected several regiments for the job, including the California Brigade, 42nd New York, as well as the 15th and 20th Massachusetts. Leading these men was Edward D. Baker. Baker is an interesting character. He was a good friend of Abraham Lincoln, at one time a fellow Whig from Illinois. He had served in a volunteer regiment of Illinois troops in the Mexican-American War. Men under his command had actually captured the wooden leg of General Santa Ana during the war. After that conflict, he would remove himself to the west, becoming a congressman from Oregon. Baker helped to make sure California and Oregon would both be Republican states for Lincoln during the 1860 election. His men were made up primarily of Irish immigrants from Philadelphia, but they were known as the 1st California Regiment in honor of Baker and the Californians who had funded them. Of course, this was a failed effort to encourage men from California to fight on the side of the Union during the war. The other regiments would also take the designation of California in honor of Baker. All would actually be renamed Pennsylvanian units shortly after the battle. Baker would be a sitting member of Congress while also holding the rank of colonel. It was an odd choice by Stone to select Baker, despite having a brief military background. Station nearby was not the large force of Confederates, but it was our old acquaintance from Bull Run, Shanks Evans. Evans was also still a colonel and was a little upset that he had not received a promotion to general following his part played during the Battle of First Bull Run. He had with him three Mississippi regiments, one of Virginians, as well as some Virginian cavalry. On October 21st, 1861, Colonel Charles Devons of the 15th Massachusetts would begin crossing the Potomac. His men would take a long time to form up. There was a severe lack of boats, and just based off where the crossing was, there were two points, one to get to Harrison Island, and then to get from the island to the Virginia shore. Once at the Virginia shore, The Union men had to climb Ball's Bluff a jagged and rocky height that would play a key role in the battle. Advancing into Virginia, Devons would run into some Mississippi troops. His single regiment would hold its own against a superior force, but eventually actually be pressured to withdraw. Devons would be joined by the 20th Massachusetts, led by Colonel Lee, as well as the 42nd New York, led by Colonel Cogswell. The 1st California rounded out the Union troops facing off against the Confederates. Colonel Baker did not arrive on the field until later in the afternoon. He had sent these regiments forward without any kind of idea of what was happening on the other side of the river. Not only was Baker green. To commanding men in combat, but so were his men, Green. The Confederate troops were already veterans. Furthermore, and probably more crucially, there was no organization when it came to the actual crossing of the troops. So there was nobody in charge of coordinating that effort. Just like there was no coordination in terms of acquiring boats to ferry the men back and forth there was also nobody who was taking charge of that sort of logistical effort and this is a great example of a battle where there needs to be some sort of logistical structure you know we always talk about some of these battles where uh, that comes into play and that's an important part but this is definitely one that we can look to as an example where had there been a better logistical structure it might not have turned out the way it did Baker would form up his men into the shape of an L against a crescent of Confederates under Evans. A struggle of firefights, charges, and countercharges would commence. I have two quotes that illustrate this type of fighting. The first is actually from a member of a Mississippi regiment, the 13th to be exact, and he writes, Upon my arrival, my company was thrown forward into the field side by side with the 8th Virginia Regiment and part of the 18th Mississippi Regiment, who had also come up under the command of Major E.G. Henry. Then it was that quite a spirited hot contest ensued, in which my company acted a conspicuous part. The enemy, having a position near a battery of howitzers, an order was given to charge the battery, which was responded to instantly, by my company and the Virginians, and I think a portion of the 18th Mississippi. The charge was successful. The guns were taken, several of my men among the first to reach the guns and take part in their removal. In the charge, I suffered no loss except one man fell mortally wounded, having been shot through the chest while making his way to the guns. At the time he fell, he was among the farthest in advance. I have also a quote from... A Captain Bartlett of the 20th Massachusetts. He writes the first volley came and the bullets flew like hail. The men now began to drop around me. Most of them were lying down in the first of it being ordered to keep in reserve. Those that were lying down if they had lifted their foot or head it was struck. One poor fellow near me was struck in the hip while laying flat. Rose to go to the rear when another struck him on the head and knocked him over I felt that I was going to be hit I should be whether I stood up or lay down so I stood up and walked around stepping over them and talking to them in a joking way to take their thoughts away from the bullets and keep them more self-possessed I was surprised at first at my own coolness I never felt better although I expected of course that I should feel the lead every second I was wondering where it would take me I kept speaking to lit surprised that he was not hit amongst the rain of bullets I said two or three times why lit aren't you hit yet lit was as cool and brave as I knew he would be the different companies began to well away under this terrible fire so we have two very different quotes surrounding the action going on seems like the mississippi regiment did not quite have as terrible of a time of it as obviously the fighting got a bit fiercer. Eventually, the Confederates would form for another charge. It was at this point that Colonel Baker was hit three to four times, killed almost instantly. Despite his shortcomings, Baker had been cool under fire until the end. A fight erupted between the Federals and the charging Confederates over the sword and body of the fallen congressman. With the death of their commanding officer, the remaining unit colonels decided it would be better to retreat back across the river. Unfortunately, the retreat, especially with the terrain, the lack of available boats, and the pressing Confederates would fall into disorder. Many of the soldiers would drown, attempting to get away to safety. There are particular herring tales of the event, and here I actually have more quotes about the battle. This one is a little bit more on the long side, though, so let's uh, bear with me. Then ensued an awful spectacle. A kind of shiver ran through the huddled mass upon the brow of the cliff. It gave way, rushed a few steps, then when one wild panic-stricken herd rolled, leaped, tumbled over the precipice. The descent is nearly perpendicular, with jagged crags and a water base. Screams of pain and terror filled the air. Men seemed suddenly bereft of reason. They leapt over the bluff with muskets still in their clutch, threw themselves into the river without divesting themselves of their heavy accoutrements. Hence, went to the bottom like lead. Others sprang down upon the heads and bayonets of those below. A gray-haired private of the first California was found with his head mashed between two rocks by the heavy boots of a ponderous Tammany man who had broken his own neck by the fall. The side of the bluff was worn smooth by the number sliding down. From the beginning of the battle, a steady stream of wounded men had been trickling down the zigzag path heading to the narrow beach, once the boats were to convey them to the island. As it happened, the two larger bateaux were just starting with an overload when the torrent of terror-stricken fugitives rolled down the bluffs upon them. Both boats were instantly submerged, and their cargoes of helpless human beings, crippled by wounds, were swept away to unknown graves. The whole surface of the water seemed filled with heads struggling, screaming, fighting, dying. Man clutched at man, and the strong who might have escaped were dragged down by the weaker. Voices that stove to shout for help were stifled by the turbid waters of the swollen river and died away in gurgles. It is strange how persons about to drown turn to their fellows for strength. They may be in mid-ocean with no hope for any. Yet they grasp one another and sink in pairs. Captain Otter of the First California was found a few days later with two men of his company clutching his neckband. Had he attempted to save them, or had they seized him and dragged him down? One officer was found with $126 in gold in his pocket. It had cost him his life. Here I have another account from a captain in the 15th Massachusetts. I went through the whole of the battle without a scratch, not even a hole in my clothes. I was very disappointed as some officers had three or four bullets through their coats and caps, so I made up for it by nearly drowning myself in the Potomac. I hadn't a suspicion but what I could swim across with ease, so I pulled off my boots and laid my sword, pistol, and belt on a small board to push across. I was anxious to save my sword, as it looked too much like surrendering to lose that. I kept all my clothes on and my pockets full. I pushed off quite deliberately although the water was full of drowning soldiers and bullets from the rebels on top of the bluff. I made slow progress with one hand, and had to abandon my raft and cargo. I got along very well, a little more than halfway, when I found that every effort I made only pushed my head underwater, and it suddenly flashed across me that I should drown. I didn't feel any pain or exhaustion. The sensation was exactly like being overcome with drowsiness. I swallowed water in spite of all I could do, At last, I sank unconscious. Captain Darby was actually saved because he was carried by the flow of the river to the shoreline of Harrison's Island and uh, actually uh, taken to a hospital, so that's why he survived to uh, tell us that uh, in his memoirs there. Overall, the damage was heavy on the Union side. There were a little over 1,000 Union casualties, whereas the Confederates suffered around 150. Drowned bodies would appear farther down the river, near the capital. Obviously, the public would not be happy with the outcome, and neither would the government. We will go over the fallout from the battle in detail in the future, but at least for the time being, it was just another setback on the long list of setbacks for the Union Army so far in 1861. The fact that Edward Baker had been killed in the action would play a big part in the eventual role Congress will see themselves as during the war. Despite his shortcomings as a field commander, Baker would be lauded by a hero and mourned by many, including Abraham Lincoln. The most curious part of the whole battle was that Charles Stone failed to reroute his troops at Edwards Ferry to support the disaster that would unfold at Balls Bluff, a short distance away. So we can say that while Baker can share some of the blame, so too could Stone, and that will be something we can highlight later. So hold on to that thought. When we left off in Kentucky, we had a brief skirmish between forces under the overall command of George Thomas and Felix Zollicoffer. Kentucky, remember, was split between those who supported the North and the South. On October 21st, 1861, the same day as Ball's Bluff, there would be a larger engagement than the previous smaller-scale actions. The Confederates would continue their push towards Lexington, which would help the South claim the key border state. Obviously, the Union forces were not willing to let this happen. The plans of the rebels were to attempt to take the state. Simon Bolivar Buckner would be threatening Bowling Green, while Zalcoffer would push on Lexington. Buckner has an interesting name, of course, named after the South American revolutionary who was popular at the time of his birth. Simon would go on to attend West Point and serve in the Mexican American War, fighting under General Wool for the latter portions of the conflict. Prior to the outbreak of the Civil War, Buckner had continued in the Army and commanded several militia units. He was a native of Kentucky. And would have many friends fight on the opposite side for the Union. His command of state Kentucky troops would combine with Zollicoffer and his predominantly Tennessee men. Remember that Tennessee was concerned with ensuring that their state would not become a battleground. Obviously, securing Kentucky would be a big step toward that goal. In October of 1861, George Thomas would send Theophilus Girard grandson of a former Kentucky governor, and at the time a colonel, to set up at a position that would become known as Camp Wildcat. This would block a key road that would aid the South in accomplishing their objectives. Gerard would recognize correctly that the Confederates were rapidly approaching, and holding his position on high ground would be important to repulse them. Gerard would write, if I do not receive more troops, I tend to abandon this place. I have no idea of having my men butchered up here, where they have a force of 6 to 1. I would like to hear from you immediately. In a sort of piecemeal kind of running fight, Camp Wildcat would receive reinforcements from Camp Dip Robinson, including troops commanded by the Polish-born General Albin Schuff. Schuff had served in the Austrian army and participated in the Hungarian Revolution of 1848. Exiled to Turkey, where he had served in the Ottoman Army for a time, he eventually found his way to America, becoming a general, commanding a brigade at Camp Wildcat. Eventually, Ship would run into some trouble, being critical of the performance of Don Carlos Buell in the Kentucky Campaign of 1862, and requested to be transferred. The Polish general would be placed in charge of Fort Delaware, which we discussed in our segment on prisoner of war camps during the Civil War. Also in the Union command is an interesting figure of James Steedman who would command the 14th Ohio at Camp Wildcat. Steedman had fought in the Texas Wars of Independence under Sam Houston. After also trying his hand during the Gold Rush in California, Steedman would return to Ohio and unsuccessfully try his hand at politics. We've actually already met Steedman before. He commanded a regiment during the Battle of Philippi, their early battle in Western Virginia. The battle for Camp Wildcat will commence on October 21st as Zolkoffer approaches. Both sides are extremely green, including Gerard's hastily put together volunteers. Training for these men sometimes including a brief rundown of how to fire their weapon. Still, the Union Army would hold the advantage showing some 7,000 men, as opposed to around 5,400 rebels. The Confederates would sometimes be armed with flintlock muskets, so they would be at a severe disadvantage in terms of armament, in addition to attacking uphill toward fixed Union positions. Even so, the Confederate Army would attempt to dislodge the Yankees, who were placed on top of Wildcat. Zollicoffer would send in the 11th and 17th Tennessee Infantry. After a sustained firefight, both regiments would be forced to withdraw, but showing the inexperience of troops and commanders, the 17th at least had some minor success. Their colonel would write, After fortification was reached, and many of my men had got within the works, not receiving any support, and being nearly destitute of cartridges, I ordered my command to fall back. This withdrawal would coincide with at a time where General Schupf deployed his reinforcements. The Confederates would try again with the 29th Tennessee Infantry, but would be repulsed again. Zollicoffer would realize that he could not take the Federal position and retreat. The Confederates had exhausted the region of supplies, so this would be an issue if they could not move forward. Overall, the battle showed some 53 total Southern casualties and 25 Federal. It was not the largest of battles, but it was important in keeping Kentucky skewed toward the Union cause and away from the clutches of the Confederacy. It would do well for morale in the West, especially after previous setbacks. Unfortunately, though, although this was a key early victory, it is often overshadowed by Balls Bluff, which was a bit larger and closer to the Capitol, so for those two reasons, Balls Bluff would take the center stage there. Another key engagement occurred in Missouri on October 21st that will bode well for the Union. We mentioned that John C. Fremont had not issued reinforcements to Nathaniel Lyon because of operations in southeast Missouri, where Gideon Pellows Force had been operating with State Guard under Jeff Thompson. M. Jeff Thompson was originally from present-day West Virginia before moving out to Missouri. His band of men operated in a particularly swampy region and became known as the Swamp Rats. Thompson himself was known as the Swamp Fox, taking on the name of the famous Revolutionary War fighter in South Carolina. When Fremont announced emancipation in Missouri, Thompson would respond with raids on Union held areas. Eliminating the 1,500 man strong thorn in the side, of the Union operations in Missouri would be a key objective. 4,500 men in two columns would converge on Fredericktown, Missouri, in October. These Union forces were actually under the command of Ulysses S. Grant, given the task of taking out Thompson. Thompson would perform some reconnaissance of the Union force, but ultimately decide to attack the Federals. Superior numbers and firepower would send the Swamp Rats into a retreat from the field, although, to Thompson's credit, he was able to make an orderly withdrawal. We have seen other instances where the State Guard broke and ran. Casualties were light, less than 150 for the State Guard, compared to some 60 for the Federal troops. The battle is significant in that it would open up the region to more offensive action, something the aggressive grant would welcome. And so, we can pause. Three small but important engagements early in the war. Balls Buff would put any significant campaigning in the East on hold until 1862. Camp Wildcat would help to secure the state of Kentucky for the Union, and likewise Fredericktown would help to ensure an ease in operations for the Union in that area. Next week, I think it's time to backtrack just a little bit. I've often referred to the Mexican American war and reference officers who serve in the conflict, but I have not had a more in depth rundown of those events. We'll go a little more into detail about those events and hopefully moving forward, make things more clear. So that way, you know what I'm talking about when I'm saying that somebody serves with general wool or they were on Scott's staff, um, you know what kind of things they saw during that conflict. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, and Venmo. Make sure to check out that Patreon. We had posted our episode for October, so that's up if that's something that interests you. And obviously, support for the show is appreciated. Feedback is also welcome. Questions, comments, and concerns, all are welcome. Email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.